The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. China is the second biggest economy in the world, a military superpower and a science giant. But this has pushed the USA to attempt to decouple its economy as it struggles to maintain its technological supremacy. But uh, what threats might China hold as a cyber power and does it have any implications at all for Ireland? I'm joined now by former deputy head of MI6, senior advisor on China and cybersecurity at the International Institute of Strategic Studies in London, and Nigel Inkster, who's author of China's Cyber Power and Decoupling, the Great Decoupling, China, America and the Struggle for Technological Supremacy. And Nigel, good morning. Good morning. Now, we want to talk about China's place in the world and if you could outline for us exactly where it stands in the various categories of military, yeah. uh, scientific, technological and much else. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in, in overall terms, the United States is still significantly ahead in most of these areas. For example, the United States accounts for 40 percent of total global military expenditure. China is probably around 11 or 12. So, you know, there is a significant difference there. China in areas like, for example, uh, semiconductor production um, is very strong in terms of manufacturing at um, what we might call trailing edge production nodes. But when it comes to the most advanced uh, production nodes, uh, the United States um, dominates, um, exercises control uh, over that more or less globally. Artificial intelligence, the same. It's quite clear that at the moment uh, the United States is well ahead. And, of course, the United States is now imposing technology embargoes on China, which make it difficult for them to get the advanced graphic processing units that they need to train large language models. So there are lots of areas. But one area where I think China is very, very strong indeed is in the totality of industrial production, something we've seen much less of uh, happening in in the West uh, over the last couple of decades. And China has developed these deep hubs of industrial manufacturing expertise linked to very impressive logistic networks of roads, railways, and high-volume container ports, um, volumes that no no other country can really match. So from that point of view, China um, occupies a, a very strong position. Where I think they need to make more progress is in terms of um, genuine innovation. We haven't really Mm. seen any significant scientific or technology innovations coming out of China yet. It will come, but not yet. That's in terms of uh, the general uh, economic measures. Mm -hmm. What are China's weaknesses? Because we know for a period there was a (coughs) one-child policy, uh, which led to social problems among, uh, you know, where's where's my bride going to come from Mm. if uh, all female children that were in gestation were being aborted for a period. Yes, well, I mean, it it, it doesn't help that um, the one-child policy was uh, developed by rocket scientists who at that time were the only intellectuals who were allowed to function (laughs) in in China. But yes, you're right, there there is a serious problem. China is facing a demographic cliff edge here, um, and that's going to impose significant uh, social stresses. Um, what are their other problems? Well, obviously, um, huge levels of indebtedness and plateauing uh, economic growth. Um, the other thing China has a problem with is, is a massive uh, domestic savings glut, which when economic growth is around sort of 4% per annum, 
is really, really difficult to utilize productively. And China, up until now, when confronting economic difficulties, has gone in for um, domestic um, investment, infrastructure spending, um, but there is a limit to how far you can take that, and I think they've reached that limit. And they recognize it. They recognize that what they need to do is move away from the old export-led model to focus on internal consumption. So the idea is to make their population generally more prosperous yes, and exactly. become consumers, in other words. Become consumers. And, and Xi Jinping is now talking about new factors uh, um, uh, of production, which essentially means moving up the value chain, focusing on... Um, um, advanced uh, technologies, which China needs to do for a number of reasons for its domestic economy, uh, because it also, if it becomes the world leader and standard setter in these new technologies, it will benefit very significantly economically, but also geopolitically. If China is in the driving seat and we're all you know, um, using Chinese standards. We're not just paying China for the privilege, but China is able to exploit that uh, for all sorts of uh, um, political purposes. How was uh, this economic miracle achieved? Mm. Because um, you write in your book that uh, the, there was a kind of a colonial chip on China's mm. shoulder ever since the Opium Wars. Yes. And, and you know, that, that, that this concept of the century of national humiliation um, is really the key driving force for everything um, in China's modern history for the last 150 years, I think it's safe to say. How to restore China to where it was maybe at the apogee of the Qing dynasty in the 18th century when it was one of the, you know, the best governed, most prosperous and powerful countries on earth. That is you know, roughly where they want to get back to. How do they do this? Well, after the collective national breakdown that was the Cultural Revolution, 10 years of anarchy, um, uh, the Chinese Communist Party decided that you know, they would have to focus on economic development and did so absolutely ruthlessly. For the best what part. did that mean when you say, uh, mm. I mean, Mao, obviously, uh, the great leader, yeah. <laughs> was not so great. And uh, eventually his demise produced a, a fairly, yeah. what, 180 degree? Oh, he did. I mean, Mao, you know, Mao wasn't all bad. I mean, under Mao, you know, China you know, um, developed basic health care and uh, literacy, which are the sort of necessary precursors mm. for what happened next. But then the Chinese Communist Party decided to, to pursue the policy of reform and opening up, bringing in uh, Western investment opening up their economy to a degree. Um, and that process was turbocharged when China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001. Uh, the point is, you know, the, the, you know the, Chi- the Chinese Communist Party never lost sight of the fact that all this was actually about strengthening their hold on power. You know, they were quite explicit mm-hmm. about this. West, the West didn't really want to listen or, or to internalize uh, that message. But you know that, that 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 was very much the message. Yes, we want to develop. Yes, um, we, because we want to, to enhance our national power and prestige. And economics is yeah. the way to do that. Now, uh, the the I suppose almost Faustian bargain with its population, mm. particularly the educated population, we will allow you to become wealthy yeah. in exchange for certain limitations on your freedom. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that, that, that has worked pretty well un, until relatively recently. But I think the gloss is starting to wear off that a, a little bit, at least with some of China's educated elite. You know, we're seeing more entrepreneurs now in China trying to move themselves and their money out of the country. 
Um, and we have a scheme in this country which allows yeah. investors to get visas and so on. Absolutely. And, 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 and there is a lot of this uh, happening. And, you know, I listen to a Chinese language uh, podcast, um, um, one which was looking at um, the experience of some of these people in different countries, including, I think, Ireland. And, you know, the constant message, why did you decide to move? One, economic reasons. Two, unhappiness with the direction of politics. But are they afraid that when the balloon goes up, that uh, they won't be able to get their wealth out of China? They may not be able to get themselves out of China. Yes, I mean, you know, they're, 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 this is difficult. You know, this, this is becoming difficult. There is now in China, um, uh, you know, a phenomenon which is, you know, sort of called, you know, running studies in Chinese. Runxue, uh, run being a Chinese character, which you know, R U N, it means something completely different in Chinese. And, you know, there's a lot of how the hell do we get out of China? You know, what do we have to do to get out of China? How can we get a visa? How can we get, you know, whatever? And we're now seeing you know, wealthy, educated Chinese trying to make their way into the United States through the uh, southern route, crossing the Darien Gap in Panama. And the, 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 the question of uh, decoupling, which you write about in your book, um, can the U.S. really decouple in any meaningful way? I mean, there is a, a symbiotic relationship between both countries. I mean, American companies looking to the vast Chinese market for their wares. Yes. Uh, America looking to Chinese manufacture mm-hmm. uh, to manufacture things more cheaply. But perhaps uh, they've lost the capability to manufacture some of the things for mass manufacture for which they used to be celebrated. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I think that um, you know, uh, China is a cheap a destination for cheap manufacture. You know, that, that, that's gone. You know, China's costs are rising and, you know, they're more in line with uh, developed world uh, levels. Uh, but the point is, as I just said, that China has this unique um, network of, um, you know, expertise, you know, deep hubs of... Uh, industrial manufacturing expertise. No other country can really can, can So really if you want that. something made quickly, fast, and at a reasonable price, yes. you go to China. You, you go to China. I mean, you know, but um, since Trump's trade war in 2018, since the pandemic, we are now seeing uh, Western companies looking to spread their risk, so to speak. People talk mm. about de-risking rather than decoupling. Uh, nowadays, uh, yeah, but China, yeah. uh, China doesn't appreciate the distinction and, and you know, doesn't want to uh, acknowledge either. So, as, so what does that mean? There's yeah. always a plan B. That well, I mean, I, I think you know, people are, you know, I mean, the, the, the pandemic made people acutely aware that uh, China had become a single point of failure for so many things that we depend mm. upon. And therefore, there was a ab- you know, commercial requirement to um, move production facilities elsewhere to minimize you know, that unique dependence yeah. on China. So the supply chain's uh, yeah. vulnerability was demonstrated, yeah, and we're seeing it again with the yeah. Red Sea yeah. and all of that. But, but, but this business very, of nearshoring, is yeah. that serious? Well, it is in some ways and, and, and not in others. I mean, you know, there, there, there are some areas, you know, I mean, it's very sector-specific. If you're in pharmaceuticals, for example, the only place to be in manufacturer is in China, you know, and, 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 and that's not you know, become an issue. If you are, say, Apple, um, then, yes, you need to spread your risk, and we're seeing companies like Apple doing that now. I mean, the fact is that the, you know, the, the environment in China for Western companies has become more difficult, you know, more restrictive, um, you know, more risky, um, and people are you know, reacting accordingly. We've seen a significant outflow of uh, foreign direct investment from China 
coming back out in very, very limited uh, levels uh, currently going in. China is actually trying to attract more Western investment to help them deal with the consequences of their massive debt problem and also you know, to learn better you know, about modern uh, finance and, and banking uh, techniques or you know, the, all these things you know, they want to do. But you know, the, the relationship is getting more tense. It is getting more difficult. We are seeing decoupling, de-risking taking place. And this is a you know, two-way process because China itself has been involved in decoupling in certain areas for you know, a long period of time. Uh, when we saw what happened with Ukraine and uh, the Western European dependence on Russian gas, mm. uh, that was a, a wake-up call yes. for, for many. So presumably the United States looking at what might happen over Taiwan mm. is l- assessing the same kind of risks. What are we so utterly dependent upon China for mm-hmm. that might stop if there was a, yes. an outbreak of hostilities. Indeed. And, and, and Taiwan is particularly salient in this regard because there's one company, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, that produces about 50% of the world's semiconductors, but nearly 90% of the most advanced semiconductors. Uh, we are now seeing TSMC moving some of its capabilities out of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. They're building two foundries in Arizona. They've just opened a foundry in Kumamoto in Japan. They plan to do more. I was in Taiwan recently for the elections, and it was clear then that Taiwanese tech companies are looking to diversify their mm-hmm. risk, move uh, capabilities and production away from Taiwan. Do you believe that the US, uh, as was touted a few months ago, has a plan that should a war break out over Taiwan, that they would just go in and bomb that uh, chip facility so that the Chinese would not get their hands on it? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I've heard about this, but uh, I've never seen any uh, firm evidence. Uh, does it make sense, though? Not entirely, no, because you know, if China were to take those advanced TSMC fa- foundries tomorrow they wouldn't actually be able to do much with them because those foundries are dependent on very, very complex supply chains of uh, very specialized inputs, chemicals, you know, lenses, mirrors, and, which most or almost exclusively produced in the West, in Western companies, in Japan, in Germany, in Switzerland. Um, and China wouldn't be able to replicate uh, that supply chain. And presumably the resident Taiwanese would probably do a little bit of industrial sabotage to make sure that... Well, quite possibly, or they would simply, you know, the, 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 the people who make the, fact, the foundry uh, run would simply leave, I mean, if they could. So, I mean, it's, it's not that straightforward. I mean, in any case, I mean, I think you know, we're talking about a temporary phenomenon here because... You know, semiconductors are changing and advancing all the time. There's a law that says the cost of you know, building a, a semiconductor foundry doubles every four years. And that is indicative of the speed and scale with which change is taking place. So, you know, what we've got now is probably not much you know, of a guide to you know, what, what, what we're going to have mm-hmm. in the future, in a sense. Um, you know, we're going, when, when it comes to advanced semiconductor manufacture, we're perilously close to having to start um, navig- uh, ma- uh, manufacturing or trying to manufacture at the subatomic level. And then there become some very interesting questions about whether this is a you know, commercially viable proposition. Um, you write that uh, China is involved in spying on, quote, unquote, an industrial scale. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, well, firstly... Because, um, because um, they uh, need to acquire um, you know, um, 
patent information, you know, IP uh, as quickly as possible to accelerate, you know, their process. So it's industrial catching. espionage yeah. in, ad- in addition to political espionage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, we're, we're now seeing the two. But when America raised this with China back in 2015, um, you know, Obama raised it with, with the Chinese, uh, there was a lot of discussion that the Americans were saying, you know, espionage for reasons of national security, acceptable. Espionage for um, economic um, reasons, not acceptable. And the Chinese pushed back on this and said, we do not recognize this distinction. For us, economic development is absolutely critical. If we fail to do it, social instability that could result mm-hmm. would potentially be terminal for the Chinese Communist Party's hold on power. So for our, from our perspective, there is no difference. Um, the Chinese Communist Party, which seems to have an iron grip on their, everything, I mean, it always is remarkable to me that you have, you know, from each according to his needs to each, uh, you know, the, to each according to his needs from each uh, according to his capabilities to give. That doesn't seem to be the philosophy of the Chinese Communist Party. You can be extremely wealthy yeah. looking down on extreme poverty in China. Well, this, this is true, and I think this was always the um, you know the, the the expectation. Deng Xiaoping was supposed to have said to get rich is glorious. He didn't. He said we must let a, per, a percentage of the population get rich first. But the idea was always you know to kind of you know sort of level uh, level out. And we you know, under Xi Jinping, um, he 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 was appointed with a remit to sort out a lot of the negative consequences from this rapid. Uh, rush for growth, mm. you know, corruption, um, inequality, a Gini coefficient, which is off the scale, um, and, you know, huge disparities of income, which you mention. And Xi Jinping uh, himself is a Marxist. Um, he has now reintroduced the Maoist concept of common prosperity, the idea that we should have a kind of leveling uh, out pr- process taking place. Uh, and, you know, China's um, most wealthy industrialists and um, you know, billionaires have more or less been told they need to do more for the common good. They need to you know, make more. They're not going to find themselves in the paddy fields labouring as they might have under Mao. No, I don't think so. I mean, as long as they, as long as they get with the programme, as long as they do what the Chinese Communist Party wants, as long as they acknowledge the need to you know, bend the knee the Chinese Communist Party, they will be left you know, to get on with their business. Finally, Nigel, China is a massive place and it cannot be governed literally from Beijing, from the centre with an iron fist without a huge cooperation. I mean, you see the difficulties in the United States where governors have certain powers and yes. so on. I mean, how stable is China? I would say it is pretty stable at the moment. I think you know the popular uh, consensus in favour of the Communist Party is pretty strong. Uh, in fact, you know the you know, urban elites, you know, the chattering classes, you know, may not be very happy, but you know there is a significant uh, proportion of the Chinese population at the moment is pretty happy with the way things are. That you know China stands tall in the world. It you know, uh, acquires respect. You know there is growing prosperity. Um, you know, all all these things are are, are seen as you know favourable, um, but it wouldn't take much you know to turn things around. As you said, China is a very big place. You know, different provinces, um, different you know, ethnicities, in spite different of different ethnicities. All of these things are there, 
and the Chinese uh, Communist Party's efforts to impose a kind of, you know, um, orthodoxy and, you know, sort of um, sameness um, is probably not going to be effective in the, in, in, in the long term. So these tensions... Mm. I suppose the last thing I should ask you, should Ireland have any concerns? Well, I think we all have to recognise that the phenomenon of China is going to impact us. It is going to change us, whether we like it or not. And the question is how we manage that, how we deal with it. So it's, you, you can't ignore China. Um, you have to deal with it. But I think it is also incumbent on everyone to be aware of the risks and challenges that China poses and to start putting together some kind of a plan for dealing with it. Nigel Inkster, former deputy head of MI6, senior advisor on China and cybersecurity at the International Institute of Strategic Studies in London. Nigel, thank you very much for joining us in My the studio. My pleasure. Thank you. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.